food, ritual, and humankind. I had a friend who was doing anthropological research in Papua New Guinea, and she was with this small tribe who had the highest rate of adoptions of any society in the world. Like more children were being raised by people who weren't their parents than any other society in the world. And she was trying to figure out why. And she finally figured out that the true parent of the child wasn't the one who gave birth to them in that community. It was the one who fed them cooked food. From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. We're entering the holiday season. And while that means many different things to many different people, there is one universal commonality, food. Ritual and food and worship are deeply intertwined and make up a critical part of the story of faith, worship, and observance. Beliefs producer Jay Woodward speaks with food anthropologist and archaeologist Professor Maureen Kastura of the Culinary Institute of America. I'm here with Maureen Costura. She's a professor at Culinary Institute of America. She's a professor of liberal arts, and she's also by trade an archaeologist and food anthropologist. Yes, I am. I wanted to talk to you today because it feels like this time of year, the ritualization of food brings us both comfort, familiarity, and I wanted to start by asking why? Why food? Why do we need food as ritual? Well, food is what anthropologists call a human universal, which means that everybody has to eat. But food is different than other cultural universals because we can choose how we do it. Everybody has to sleep. Everybody has to breathe. But there's only one way to do those things. But everyone has to eat. And yet there are so many different conditions surrounding food that we can really make it our own. And it becomes our own culture by culture. It's passed down generation by generation. And that makes it very deeply rooted, very important to us. We know that people will give up all different sorts of identity markers, but keep making the same types of food generation to generation. What kind of identity markers do you mean by that? Well, things like um, manners of dress, uh, even names, language, um, religion. People will um, alter all of these aspects of their life, but they'll continue eating the same foods. And we see that archaeologically in different places. Oh, tell me about that. Okay. So there was a <laughs> there was a big dig that was done down in New York City um, several years ago in the Five Points region. And what they found is that in the areas that were um, largely inhabited by immigrants in the 19th century, you could track house by house, apartment by apartment even, which ethnicity people had come from, even two or three generations later, German, Italian, Irish based not on what they were wearing or things like that or what language they were speaking, but based on the cuts of meat and the types of dishes that they used. So as a process of immigration, of refugee resettlement, there's all sorts of ways where we assimilate. We're going to adopt a dress. We're going to think differently. We're going to try and, you know, build our community. But when we go back home go back into our kitchens, it's still going to be the same borscht or the same, you know, baked potatoes or, or what have you. Absolutely. Yeah. I noticed one thing that you said is that there is the correlation to sleep, the cultural human universal. And I'm feeling like there are a lot of overlaps with worship. Is that central to humanity as well? Absolutely. There's no culture that we know of in all of human history that didn't have some idea of a divine 
even if they rejected it, even if they questioned it, but it's always part of culture. Mm. So that makes it a universal as well. There are so many different ways that religion uh, takes food and imposes there are rules. Yeah. There are different rules for what to eat. Mm-hmm. My favorite is uh, fish on Fridays, which right. seems to have fallen away. But yeah. Well, one food rule, I mean, every religion has food rules. Some of them, if they're really familiar, they're not even going to be recognized as being a food rule. But for instance, you mentioned fish on Fridays. But there are two foods that you are required to consume if you want to consider yourself an active Christian. What are those? Bread and wine. You have to eat those things. You have to consume them. But they carry so much symbolic weight that they're not thought of as being a food restriction or a food taboo in the same way that we think of kosher or halal. That brings up, obviously, great questions of transubstantiation. Mm -hmm. The act of eating the food transforms it, makes it a miracle, and brings it into an absolutely supernatural place. That act of, of mutating, of the alchemy of food into something divine into a miraculousness. Does that, is that mirrored in other cultures as well? In fact, it's mirrored in some, to some extent in all food. There's a really famous anthropologist named Claude Levi-Strauss who says that all food is transformed and all food is transformative. Food is taken from nature as ingredients, but then in order for it to be recognized as food, it has to undergo transformation. So olives into olive oil, no one eats raw olives. Uh, wheat into bread, uh, grapes into wine. Mm. All of those things are acts of transformation. Cooking is the, the medium of transformation. So what's really amazing about the, the miracle of transubstantiation, as it's understood by the Catholic Church, is that it's almost as though the transformation is being done by God, not man. But we all transform food in the act of cooking it and in the act of creating it. So yeah, food is always transformation. I had a friend who was doing anthropological research in Papua New Guinea, and she was with this small tribe who had the highest rate of adoptions of any society in the world. Like more children were being raised by people who weren't their parents than any other society in the world. Mm. And she was trying to figure out why. And she finally figured out that the true parent of the child wasn't the one who gave birth to them in that community. It was the one who fed them cooked food. Because animals give birth. Animals eat raw food. Human beings cook. And so if someone wanted to adopt a child, they would come with cooked food. And that would make them that person's real and true parent in the eyes of the community. Wow. Yeah, Yeah, it's pretty wild. So I've got to ask, are there any other creatures walking, flying, swimming that do things to prepare their food? Not to the same extent. We've witnessed in recent years um, some beginnings potentially of things like that. So in Japan, there's uh, groups of monkeys, I think they're macaques, that have recently discovered that they can cook their food in hot springs. And they've started doing that. And what's really interesting is that they've started teaching others to do that. So it started with one tribe, like one, one family. And the matriarch of the family figured out how to do this. She would drop yams into hot springs and spear them to pull them out or rake them out. And she started teaching her daughters. And now it's spread throughout that area. 
That's interesting. That reminds me of a of a nature program I saw where there was a an ape of some kind that used a, a stick to thread down into the ant hole. Mm-hmm. The ants would jump onto the stick, and it was um, you know it was a fork. Oh yeah, animals have been using tools in lots of different ways for years, and we never really recognized it. But cooking is new. There is a theory that cooking actually is really responsible for everything that makes us human in the sense that when you cook anything, you free up more calories, you make them more accessible. It's almost as though you're taking that part of digestion and externalizing it so you don't have to spend the energy on it. You're getting that energy from the fire. So when you do that, you get about 30% more calories from your food. And the more you process your food, whether that's cooking, fermenting, grinding up and reforming in a patty, whatever it is, you're actually making those calories more accessible to you. So the theory is that at some time in the past, when our hominin ancestors figured out how to do this, they actually changed the conditions of life for themselves so that all of the energy that they used to have to spend on chewing things for hours and hours, on having these really long digestive tracts, instead that energy goes to brain development. And that's the theory is that that's when we start to see the enlargement and the, the increase in complexity of the human mind. As far as like the miracle is concerned, mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about um, miraculous foods? One of the things that we um, think about with food is that it's very transformative to people because it's one of these few things that enters your body. It goes to make you, to make you up. So we call it this a, a liminal thing. Um, a liminal state is when you're on the border. You're between two things. You're not quite in either. And that's always a time of risk and it's a time of danger. And so food is one of the things that acts in a liminal way. It comes from the outer world and it goes into your inner world and it transforms you. And so food is considered um, something that makes humans. It helps to make you human. And it could be something like keeping uh, kosher is a way of claiming your humanity and your belonging to a place in humanity. What we say when we talk about food transformation, you know, wine is not grapes. Bread is not wheat. It's something that's been altered and been transformed on its very basic nature. And according to the Catholic Church, that's what the miracle of transubstantiation does. It is a physical transformation. And so one of the most commonly reported miracles is that the blessed host will be left somewhere. And when people go back, it won't won't have been properly disposed of, which you're supposed to dissolve it with water, you know, in some other way dispose of it. But when people go back, the, the reported miracle is that it's actually transformed into flesh, skin, or blood as it's been left. That's really like there's just... That's the story. That's the story. It actually happened in my hometown in Allentown, Pennsylvania. There was a reported miracle of a priest who threw away some of the communion wafer in a trash can rather than dissolving it, went back and found flesh and blood. These things will get reported then um, up the, the hierarchy and even all the way to Rome. And there are people whose job it is to investigate miracles mm-hmm. and to go out and to, to check and see whether these line up with Catholic dogma and theology and whether they can be credited as being true miracles. Mm-hmm. I want to turn for a second to the other part of the rules, the way some food is right and some food is wrong, and how that food does identify us, but it's also been given to us by God. God tells us what's right and what's wrong. How did we, how did we come to those? 
there's a lot of different theories about that. There's one theory that uh, it's strictly functional, that if you look back archaeologically at uh, what's now Israel, um, there are people eating pork. And they are eating pork for a very long time until the climate changes. And at that point, you start to see the oak forests that used to cover that area go into decline, and it becomes much more dry and arid, more like a desert. At that point, you can't just drive your pigs into the forest and have them eat acorns. You have to feed them some things that human beings might prefer to eat. Grain, vegetable scraps and trimmings. That's the sort of food that they need. And so they become, instead of an additional food resource, they become competition. So that's one theory. Another theory is that it's got to do with the way that we draw that those liminal things again, that those categories, and that it doesn't actually say no pork. What it says is that animals have to, the Bible says that animals have to both chew their cud and have cloven hooves if they're a land animal. And if they only have one of those things, then they're not okay. And if they have neither of those things, they are okay. But it's either you don't have either or you've got both. And in between is not acceptable. The liminal animals are not acceptable. So pigs have toes, like cloven hooves, but they don't chew the cud. So they are unacceptable. And it's not just pigs. There's also some animals called hyrax that are native to that region of the world that look sort of like bunny rabbit guinea pig creatures. And they also fall in that in-between category. Mm. And the same is true with sea creatures. It has to both have, I think it's scales and gills in order to be considered okay to eat mm. uh, and if it lives underwater. But shrimp and shellfish live underwater but don't have scales or gills. Mm. So they are unacceptable. So it's about moving between categories mentally that makes a food okay or not okay. So every culture must have this. Absolutely, yes. Taking into consideration that there are right foods and wrong foods, how has that evolved through cultures? Does every culture have something that they forbid? Absolutely. Every single culture that we're aware of has different categories for food. There's the things that you eat every day. There's the things that you eat on special ritual occasions. There's the things that you will only eat under conditions of starvation. And then there are the foods that are forbidden or taboo. And if you consume those things, you have to pay a penalty. And the penalty might be social, it might be religious, or it might be economic or legal. Uh, but in order to be part of the community again, you have to pay that penalty. And that goes back to how food comes into people and makes people. We are the people who eat this. Those people over there, they eat the wrong thing. They eat the bad meat. Mm. They eat the unacceptable thing. And therefore, they are less human than we are because they are taking in the wrong thing. So what is the status then of the apple, the apple that becomes the thing that is eaten and all of the metaphor that cascades on top of that? So apples are heavily symbolic, but they're also really commonly consumed. Mm -hmm. And I think what's going on is that in some of the sources, they claim that maybe it wasn't originally an apple because apples were probably not present in the Middle East during that time period. Um, they actually come from um, Central Asia, Kazakhstan, and Western Russia. So probably, if you're looking thousands of years ago in what's now the Middle East, you would have been looking at a pomegranate or a date rather than an actual apple. 
But when that story gets communicated to Western Europe, when, when Christianity arrives, they don't grow pomegranates or dates there. Mm. By that time, the common fruit is the apple. And wow. so it becomes transferred. In modern times, we've got all of this stuff that's, that's more plastic than food, say. But we still have deep ritual around it. Like, I, I can't stop with the candy corns at Halloween because God knows why. I should know better, but I don't. And all of these secular parts where we ritualize food, what am I doing there? Okay, so in order for a food to be considered ritual or a meal to be considered a ritual, it's got to have one of it's got to have one of these these conditions it's either got to have a um, recurring menu you have to know what you're expected to serve kind of like a seder exactly like a seder or like thanksgiving or like candy corn at halloween or easter um, candy so that's the recurring menu it's got to have a recurring time frame you have to know when to expect it now that could be thanksgiving or it could be taco tuesday mm-hmm. you know that's a ritual too it could have a recurring guest list. If you're having Thanksgiving, many people know basically who they're going to be eating Thanksgiving dinner with, or it can have a recurring location. You basically, a lot of the time, know where you're going to eat Thanksgiving and with who, and you know what's going to be on the table and you know when it's going to be. That's the perfect ritual meal. It's got all of them. Now, if anything happens to force you to change one of those things, it's going to feel weird. You may not be able to explain why it feels weird, but it's going to throw off your assumption about what this meal is. And these things last for a really long time. Even after we've lost all of the reasons why we had to do it that way, we keep doing it that way. So uh, gingerbread at Christmas is a great example. Today, you can get, or pumpkin pie. Today, you can get those ingredients year round. Like, it's not like we have the great ginger harvest on December 1st, you know, but we still continue to make these things at these traditional times because 700, 800 years ago, that's when they were available. In medieval Europe, fall is when the spice fleets would put in. They would be coming back from Asia and they would arrive and they would be carrying these spices at this cold and dark and wet time of year. And you'd buy these extremely expensive warming spices and you'd serve them you'd wait to serve them at the the most special time of year and that's when you'd make gingerbread and today we've lost all of that but we kept the gingerbread so it's okay then that my family is you know we're making paella on thanksgiving and while i certainly love paella and have no deep affection for roast turkey i'm still a little bit off kilter as a result of it, but we all got together as a group and we're, we're going paella. Absolutely. I mean, you can make those choices about changing it, but you would expect there to be a certain, just a feeling of something being slightly off. It doesn't mean it's bad. And certainly different um, ethnic groups and immigrant groups adapt these rituals to their own tastes. Mm. So there's always stories in magazines this time of year of, you know, Indian Thanksgiving, family arriving from India and they want to make Thanksgiving dinner and they're going to incorporate Indian flavors. That's the way that rituals evolve. You were talking about the liminality that always accompanies food. And I can think of nowhere that is more liminal than the kitchen, this place where this material comes in and this material comes out. It's the place where transformation occurs. And that is what this institution is all devoted to. 
you know, there's a vibe in a kitchen that's supposed to be so inherent to it. And that becomes ritual too. What is it that you talk to your students about when it comes to developing a relationship with the history of cooking, with with being in a kitchen, with, with making both newer and historic uh, recipes? Well, we try to make sure that our students have a sense for the, the history and for the fact that what's normal to them isn't universal. That because everyone eats differently, you can grow up with a tradition and have it seem completely normal to you. And yet it's not going to be shared everywhere. And that if you want to be a success in a kitchen, you have to be able to separate out that, that normal for you from the universal and to understand what what assumptions people are making. But the kitchen is an incredibly ritualistic space. You have, you know, the ritual costumes, you have their your own language when you're within the kitchen. Mm. People talk about things being 86th instead of finished. Or they talk about, you know, walking behind someone and you you don't say excuse me, you say behind, which again is not that acceptable outside of the kitchen. Mm. But in that space, it's the appropriate way to act. And it becomes really internalized to the point where I'll have students in the classroom when they're trying to show respect or when they're just not thinking and they're showing respect, they'll call me chef. It's just, it's part of the way that we create culture. We get people to internalize these expectations. And that happens with food too. I'm wondering also about how certain things aren't exactly ritual and they aren't exactly uh, worship, but they are maybe closer to the superstition side. Kitchens have those, don't they? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Human beings are pattern-seeking creatures. We like there to be um, reasons for things. We like there to be um, categories in our mind, things that you do here but not here. Um, and you, you see that in, in kitchens all the time. Um, you see people who you know, need to have their mise en place, their ingredients set a certain way. You see um, gradations of status being shown by the, the height of the chef's hat. You know, all of these sorts of things, they're, they're deeply ingrained in the culture. And, uh, you know, that's just normal for our students. I read an article recently that said, in fact, ritual makes food taste better. Can you think of any advice as we go through this time of deep, deep food ritual of, of how to really make it better? Sure. I would say just approach it with intentionality. You are doing something that's extraordinary. You're doing something that has deep roots, that has deep tradition. Take a moment to acknowledge that, to you know, not try to oversimplify. Everybody wants a simple, easy experience, but some things are worth taking their time over. If you want to have that full experience, then make it a ritual. Set the table properly call everyone, summon everyone, have your traditions that you continue to carry forward because those have such deep roots and they have such an impact that a lot of the time we lose sight of when we're all rushing around. Maureen Costura, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you very much. Our guest this week was Professor Maureen Costura of the Culinary Institute of America. The conversation continues on our Facebook page and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University.
Jay Woodward is our producer. The theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker, and thank you for listening.